All right, everybody. It is Wednesday, February 22nd. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mo Shwanunu. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. We read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill is off today, so let's get started here. The Supreme Court heard a major case on Tuesday that could determine the future of the internet. I'll tell you all about it. The EPA said to Norfolk Southern in Ohio on Tuesday that they're the captain now when it comes to the cleanup. We'll talk about what changes there. Nearly 45 million Americans will see a major blast of winter in the coming days, with some cities seeing record snowfall potentially. Brittany Griner says she is officially back for this year's WNBA season. Presidents Biden and Putin delivered dueling speeches on Tuesday. We'll have the results of that huge four-day workweek study that we've been closely watching. And as always, I will have your On This Day in History, and I'll tell you today what you want, what you really, really want. Let's start with that major case the Supreme Court heard on Tuesday that could dictate the future of the Internet and how we use it. This is the first real examination of the federal law that protects Internet companies from lawsuits when it comes to what they post on their platforms and what they recommend. And it appears the Supreme Court justices are going to move very cautiously when it comes to this law. Yesterday, they heard more than two and a half hours of arguments regarding a claim by the family of a student killed in an ISIS attack that it was YouTube that should be liable for promoting content from ISIS. Google, which owns YouTube, claims that they're protected by a 1996 law called Section 230 that gives them legal immunity from being sued. It appears for now that liberal and conservative justices were both confused by the arguments offered by the family's lawyer, and it appears that Google's argument may have won out. Let's talk a bit about Section 230 because you may have heard about it in news stories these past couple of years. It is a section of a law passed by Congress back in 1996 that does give a certain level of legal immunity for any internet platform. And they passed this back then to encourage the development of the internet and allow these tech companies to grow and host third-party content. Over the last couple of decades, courts have found that that Section 230 does shield tech companies from culpability over the posts, photos, and videos that people like you and me share on their services. Essentially, what tech companies argue is that no matter what you or me post on our social media profiles, those tech companies can never be sued for it. And it appears for now that the justices appear to buy that argument. Liberal Justice Elena Kagan told the court, quote, we really don't know about these things. You know, these are not like the nine greatest experts on the internet. She said, referring to the nine Supreme Court justices, she argued that it's up to Congress, not the court, to make any needed changes to Section 230 or any other Internet laws, especially since those laws were passed back in the mid 90s before social media existed back in the AOL dial up era. And this is interesting. Justice Brett Kavanaugh, a conservative, one of six of the conservatives on the court, agreed with Elena Kagan. They're not apt to typically agree, but they appear to agree here. During arguments yesterday, he asked, quote, isn't it better to keep things the way they are and put the burden on Congress to change them? This is something you often hear from the court, especially these days, that they want to kick things back to Congress, that their job is not to legislate because Congress hasn't passed laws themselves. The concern from both liberal and conservative justices was that a ruling on behalf of the family could unleash a wave of lawsuits against Internet companies for posts across the spectrum. The family had argued that the YouTube algorithm had promoted ISIS content, but justices were not really hearing it. Justice Clarence Thomas, another conservative, asked during the arguments whether YouTube used the same algorithm to recommend rice pilaf recipes and terrorist content. Google lawyer said, yes, same algorithm. The one notable thing, there was some skepticism from a couple of the justices about how broad Section 230 is. The newest justice, Katanji Brown-Jackson, aggressively questioned the lawyer representing Google. Justice Jackson suggested that the original intent of Section 230 was to protect tech companies from liability, but also encourage them to take down offensive content. The Google lawyer disagreed, saying they believe Section 230 
allows it to basically do whatever it wants. So we will wait for a final ruling in June, but based on these arguments, it appears that Section 230 will stand in some parts, but it will be interesting to see if we get a narrower ruling of the law based on what I just noted about Justice Jackson. No matter what, it does appear that the Supreme Court is telling Congress, hey guys, it's time to update internet laws you wrote back when AIM was popular. Okay, let's head abroad here, where it was a war of words between President Biden and President Putin on Tuesday. In Warsaw, Poland yesterday, President Biden warned of hard and bitter days ahead as Russia's invasion of Ukraine nears the one-year mark this weekend. Biden insisted that the U.S. and European allies will not waver in support of Ukraine. It comes a day after his surprise visit we told you about to Kyiv. He used the address in neighboring Poland to praise allies in Europe for stepping up over the past year to the European people for taking on higher prices and still standing by Ukraine. And his hope with the speech was to send a clear message to President Putin that, quote, NATO will not be divided and it will not tire. Russia and Ukraine right now are each preparing spring offensives as the second year of the war begins. Biden insisted that there will be no backing down from what he's portrayed as a global struggle between democracy and autocracy, though polling right now in the U.S. suggests that there is some lessening support for military assistance, especially among some Republicans. Biden declared in Poland on Tuesday, democracies of the world will stand guard over freedom today, tomorrow and forever, and we will have Ukraine's back. Biden was also pretty explicit in describing Russian crimes over the last year. Take a listen. They've committed depravities, crimes against humanity, without shame or compunction. They've targeted civilians with death and destruction, used rape as a weapon of war, stolen Ukrainian children in in an attempt to steal Ukraine's future. Meanwhile, in Russia on Tuesday, in a national address, President Putin showed no sign that he plans to change any course here, and he signaled to Russia that they should prepare for a very long war ahead. He accused the West and the U.S. of what he called a totalitarian project to control the world under the guise of liberal values. Significantly, he also declared that Russia was suspending their one last remaining nuclear arms treaty with the U.S., That treaty, which is called New Start, was signed back in 2010 by the two presidents at the time, Barack Obama and Dmitry Medvedev of Russia. It has limited the number of nuclear warheads that both sides can deploy and gives each country the power to inspect the other. Under that deal, each side was limited to 1,550 long-range nuclear warheads. Keep in mind, it just takes a couple to really destroy a country. Uh, And right now, between the U.S. and Russia, they account for almost all of the world's nuclear weapons. But Russia was recently found in violation of that treaty, and now it appears that Putin is ripping it up altogether. As he finished, Putin again insisted that the Western nations had actually started the war in Ukraine, saying he was the one who was forced to invade and engage in a year-long war because it was the U.S. and Europe who were getting too close to Ukraine. We'll continue to give you frequent updates on the Instagram feed and here on the podcast as we mark one year of the war in Ukraine. Okay, let's take a quick break here before we get to the speed read to thank our sponsors this week. I feel like something we often talk about on this podcast is sleep studies, the importance of getting a good night's sleep to your health. And we have some great news today for Mo News listeners about one thing that could help you. Bolin Branch Bedding and Sheets is extending their special deal for all of you. They're offering 15% off plus free shipping for a limited time with the promo code MONEWS. My wife and I got our first set of Bolin Branch sheets uh, made of 100% organic cotton a few months ago, and it has been a game changer. A reminder, we spend a third of our lives in bed, so sheets are a very big deal. Bolin Branch sheets are keeping us very warm this winter, and what is great is that with every wash, they get softer and softer. 
So I urge all of you to head over to bullandbranch.com. That is B-O-L-L-A-N-D branch.com, bullandbranch.com. For a limited time, get 15% off your first set of sheets and free shipping when you use the promo code MONEWS. Again, that is bullandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D branch.com, promo code MONEWS. Okay, now let's talk about something that is also so important to your health, getting all your vitamins and supporting digestion and gut health. I first started using Athletic Greens AG1 powder last fall. It's just one scoop with a glass of water in the morning. It's easy, quick, and lets you get on with your day knowing that you've gotten over 75 important ingredients, including tons of vitamins and minerals. What's great about the AG1 powder is it also has pre and probiotics to support digestion, gut health. We know how important that is. And with your first purchase of AG1, Athletic Greens is giving Mo News listeners a free one-year supply of their vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1. You can head over to athleticgreens.com slash monews to take advantage of this offer. You can get a monthly subscription or try it for just one month. Again, athleticgreens.com slash monews, M-O-N-E-W-S, for this special deal, it'll really allow you to start to take ownership of your health. All right, now it is time for the speed read. Let's start with this from the AP. It'll be a tale of two Americas when it comes to the weather the next few days. A monster winter storm took aim at the upper Midwest starting on Tuesday, threatening to bring blizzard conditions, bitterly cold temperatures, and two feet of snow to certain cities. It's part of a three-day onslaught that could affect more than 40 million Americans. The storm began midday and is continuing through Thursday, dumping heavy snow and ice over parts of the Dakotas, Nebraska, Minnesota, Iowa, and Wisconsin. The wind might hit 50 miles per hour in some places. And what's notable here, this region is known for its winters and snowfall, but even by their standards, this snowfall could be historic. Total accumulation could hit 25 inches with the heaviest amounts falling across east-central Minnesota and western Wisconsin. The Minneapolis-St. Paul area could see two feet of snow. It could be their most significant snow in over 30 years, again, even by the standards of the Twin Cities. The first blast is set to arrive this afternoon with up to seven inches of snow. Then a second round starts on Wednesday, going into Thursday morning. That'll be the real whopper, according to the National Weather Service, with an additional 10 to 20 inches expected. And while many of you in the northern U.S. deal with the winter blast, I've heard from some of you in Minnesota who say that you are all stocked up for the winter. You're offering to send photos uh, to Mo News Instagram account. We look forward to getting them. Everyone, of course, stay safe. Those of you who are listening in the mid-Atlantic and southeast are set to see record warm temperatures, 30 degrees to 40 degrees above normal in some places. Record highs are expected in the next couple of days in Baltimore, New Orleans, and much of Florida. Washington, D.C. could hit 80 degrees on Thursday, which would top a 150-year record for this time of year. All right, let's go out west with this from the L.A. Times. We're learning much more about the murder this weekend of a Catholic bishop in Southern California. It turns out that the man arrested on Monday in the weekend killing of Catholic Bishop David O'Connell is actually married to the housekeeper of the bishop and had done work in his home. Auxiliary Bishop O'Connell was fatally shot on Saturday in the bedroom of his home in Hacienda Heights, that's about 20 miles east of downtown L.A. The murder has shocked the L.A. religious and immigrant communities. A SWAT team arrested Carlos Medina. He's the husband of O'Connell's housekeeper on Monday. The sheriffs were first able to link Medina to the crime after finding surveillance video that showed his SUV in the driveway of O'Connell's home at the time of the killing. A caller had also told authorities that Medina was acting irrationally and had made comments about Bishop O'Connell owing him money. Detectives have also recovered weapons at Medina's home and ballistic tests are pending. So many people right now are mourning Bishop O'Connell in the Los Angeles area. He'd been a priest for 45 years. He's a native of Ireland. In 2015, Pope Francis had named him one of several auxiliary bishops 
of that archdiocese. O'Connell had worked in South LA for many years, focused on gang intervention and in immigrant communities. Following the 1992 riots that followed the Rodney King beating, he sought to broker peace between residents and law enforcement. LA Archbishop Jose Gomez is among those mourning him, saying that O'Connell spoke fluent Spanish, albeit with an Irish accent, but every day showed compassion to the poor, to the homeless, to the immigrants, and to all those living on society's margins. Okay, switching gears here from the Pittsburgh Tribune Review, the EPA announced on Tuesday that they will be taking control of the response to the Ohio train derailment. They are now making clear that they're in charge to rail company Norfolk Southern and overseeing the cleanup of the contamination. It is the White House's strongest response yet to that disaster that took place just over two weeks ago. Rather than clean up the toxic wreck voluntarily, as it has done so far, Norfolk Southern will now be required to remediate the site under a plan approved by the EPA, which will also take over some aspects of the response from the state of Ohio. So this is the Fed stepping in here saying we're going to assert control after some of the complaints we've been hearing. In addition to paying those remediation costs, Norfolk Southern will also have to pay for cleaning services that the EPA will offer to residents and businesses, participate in public meetings, and share all information publicly. This all comes after that February 3rd derailment, which released toxic chemicals and fumes over a wide area. There are a number of the residents who have been complaining of feeling sick in the aftermath of that. So this move on Tuesday effectively gives the federal government oversight of the massive cleanup through a legally binding order. They're using a law that the government has used for years that's commonly known as Superfund sites. And it really marks a shift here from emergency response to uh, understanding that this is a longer-term cleanup. Now, federal officials didn't cite any specific mismanagement so far by Norfolk Southern when it comes to the cleanup, but the EPA said they're going to try to push them to do the right thing and to do it as quickly as possible and as transparently as possible. Again, this all comes as there have been complaints that the White House hasn't been as aggressive as it should have been over the last couple of weeks here uh, when it comes to the aftermath and the cleanup. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, who's also gotten his share of criticism uh, from uh, folks mainly on the right, but some Democrats, also announced on Tuesday new requirements for train companies. He says that railroads and tank car owners should take action themselves to accelerate their plan to upgrade the tank cars that hold flammable liquids, you know, like crude oil and ethanol. He wants them to upgrade those things within two years. Right now, the standard Congress has set is uh, by 2029. But the Transportation Department here is saying we'd like you to move much faster. Buttigieg is also asking freight railroads to agree to a confidential hotline that allows employees to report safety concerns without fear of retribution. And he's also calling on the train companies to reach agreements to provide their employees with paid sick time to help prevent fatigue, uh, viewed as one of the uh, culprits when it comes to these accidents. Back in Ohio, crews are continuing to dig up a 1,000-foot swath around the tracks and pumping out water. That comes as federal and state officials continue to test the air and water for safety. All right, a quick sports story from ESPN. Brittany Griner will be back in the NBA this season, once again playing for her team, the Phoenix Mercury. She was a free agent, but re-signed with the team on Tuesday. The 32-year-old spent 10 months last year in detainment in Russia. You might recall she was arrested at an airport just outside Moscow on drug possession charges and then was brought home in a dramatic high-level prisoner exchange back in December. Griner had skipped a USA basketball training camp earlier this month, but she needed some time to figure out whether she wanted to play again. Griner was originally drafted number one back in 2013 by the Phoenix Mercury, who she will be playing for again. The WNBA season is set to start in May. And we'll end here with a bit of good news from ABC News, especially for those of you looking to work only four days a week. 
What's been billed as the world's largest ever trial of a four-day work week over in Britain has found that an overwhelming majority of the 61 companies that participated in it will keep the shorter hours going. This trial took place from June to December, and unsurprisingly, it found that most employees who worked four days a week were less stressed and had better work-life balance. So that's not a shocker, but here's what is. The companies largely reported that their revenue stayed the same during the trial compared to the previous year and even grew compared with the previous six months of 2022. Researchers say they're very encouraged by the results and they want other companies to try four-day work weeks. The study involved nearly 3,000 workers at those 60-plus companies. And as I noted, the employees reported a number of benefits. 71% felt less burned out, 39% less stressed, and 48% more satisfied with their job than before the trial. Of the workers, 60% said it was easier to balance work and responsibilities at home, and 73% reported increased satisfaction with their lives. Also notable, fatigue was down, people were sleeping more, and mental health improved. So let's see who else takes on the uh, four-day work week after this trial. For now, this podcast remains five days a week, though we will let you know when we experiment ourselves with four days a week. Okay, I'm just kidding. Maybe. All right, that brings us to On This Day in History. Let's start 204 years ago today. In 1819, Spain officially signed away Florida to the United States. It was part of a larger deal. Spain at the time got a better border for Texas, which was still in their hands. They still controlled a lot of the South and West. But by 1819, they decided Florida was all ours. Staying in Florida for a second, on this day in 1959, 64 years ago, the inaugural Daytona 500 NASCAR race took place. And 43 years ago today, on this day in 1980, that was Al Michaels and the announcing team announcing the miracle on ice that had just taken place in Lake Placid, New York, as the U.S. Olympic hockey team upset the Soviet Union 4-3. It's one of the biggest upsets in Olympic history. You may have seen films or documentaries made about it. That U.S. team would go on to win the gold medal, and it came at a very challenging time, a previously challenging time, between U.S. and Russia, also amid the backdrop of the Iranian hostage crisis and the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Okay, a couple birthdays here on this February 22nd. We should note this officially marks George Washington's birthday, even though we celebrated President's Day a couple days ago, February 22nd, is when our first president was born. Back to those celebrating this year, Dr. J, the NBA legend, Julius Irving, is 73 today. Actress Drew Barrymore is 48, and singer James Blunt is 49. And we end here with a bit of musical history. 45 years ago today, we heard these chords for the first time. Did you guess it? That's the Eagles Hotel California, released 46 years ago today, February 22nd, 1977. And finally, yep, that's Spice Girls with Wannabe, which hit number one on the Billboard charts on this day in 1996. I want to thank you for listening to the Mo News Daily Podcast. Please follow or subscribe to the show so you don't miss a single episode and leave us a review in the App Store. Those reviews really matter and we're so grateful for them and they really help the show grow. And beyond the podcast, don't forget to follow us over at the Mo News Instagram account at Mosh at M-O-S-H-E-H. I'll see everyone back here tomorrow.